Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today I am honored to be joined by Jay Levy, Weird Al's manager, who has also directed many of Weird Al's music videos, as well as the Weird Al movie, UHF. Welcome to the show, Jay. That's a true story. Because you have been with Al since the beginning, right? Since the uh, Earth's, as he would say, since the Earth's crust uh, cooled, yes. What year was that? Oh, man. Um, I guess it would be somewhere around 1981. And how did this relationship get started? The way it got started was I was uh, a manager for um, just a select few people, primarily working with... I was living in Los Angeles, and I was working with the noted uh, DJ, Dr. Demento. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, for those who don't know, um, Dr. Demento, um, he's still uh, going, but he's primarily going at this point on radio, uh, on internet radio. Um, At that time, he was a big deal and was for many, many years um, in syndicated radio um, uh, with a a show that was uh, all comedy and novelty music. And I was working with the good doctor, who goes by the real name of Barry Hansen, and it was right at the time that Al was, you know, he, I guess he was just finishing college. He, at that point, and then just uh, started a job, like a day job, was sending in tapes to Dr. Demento. He became uh, sort of like, the, oh, very quickly, um, he became kind of a, the, uh, the lead artist, if you will, for the Dr. Demento show with his parodies that, and, and even it's uh, the originals that he was sending in where he would just, you know, send in the uh, recordings he would make uh, on his, uh, uh, using his accordion in his bedroom, you know, and just send them into Dr. Demento and became, uh, you know, huge on the Dr. Demento show. So in this little bubble, which was, you know, I guess several million people that would listen to the Dr. Demento show, he was giant, he was the Beatles, you know. For the rest of the world who didn't listen to Dr. Demento, he was still relatively unknown. And then what happened was basically, you know, so it was through the Dr. Demento show that I met Al, and uh, we invited him one day to a, uh, a gig, you know, we would set up shows with Dr. Demento that we would do in clubs, small theaters, where he would do his DJ thing live and show short movies, uh, short films, and stuff like that, and um, we would occasionally have a live guest, and we uh, invited him to come out. I think it was in Phoenix, where we were playing at a club, and it was just him and his accordion, and he came out, he did a 20-minute set, and he just killed. He just, you know, mopped him up, and it was just, it was extraordinary to sort of watch the, you know, the um, uh, the reaction from the crowd. It was It was one of those... Uh, you know, epiphanal moments, you know, of, mm-hmm. you know, it was just like, holy cow. I mean, it was without a band, without anything. So um, after that, I mean, he came off stage and I just sort of looked at him and said, have you thought about doing this, you know, professionally? And he kind of looked at me almost like I must be kidding and said, you know, well, yeah, of course. Like he had always really wanted to do that. And um, we started from there. That seems like it might have been a little bit crazy at the time because was there a large market for comedy songs and novelty songs or it, was it just Dr. Demento? It was just Dr. Demento. And I mean, you could pretty much say, I mean, there was a market when I was growing up. I mean, I'm showing my age. I guess I showed my age when I told you when we first started working together. But, you know, growing up, I listened to and Al listened to. We had the same heroes. Um, 
which is part of what led me to Dr. Domeno. And then to Al, I would listen to Alan Sherman and the Smothers Brothers and Tom Lehrer. And that's, I mean, I was, I was glued to those guys. And that was a big, a relatively large, you know, Firesign Theater. There was a relatively large, Stan Freeberg, you know. It was a, a relatively, relatively large. I mean, certainly never as large as... Um, as regular pop music. However, it was at a time when, you know, on the pop charts, um, you would have the Beatles next to They're Coming to Take Me Away, haha, by Napoleon the Fourteenth, which is some whacked out, you know, yeah, I kinda single, know right? Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, so the, you know, the comedy singles would chart. They would actually chart. Then radio got very structured and got very, very, very selective and you know, it got um, very narrow, and then that became very difficult to do. So there was a point at which, basically, um, certainly when I met Al, um, to there's a long-winded answer to your question. There was no other market, really, except for Dr. Demento. Was there something you saw in Al that made you think he could break through that Dr. Demento bubble and into the mainstream? <sighs> Just sheer talent. I don't, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't thinking about, well, this is a tough market. It's going to be tough to crack. I was thinking, this guy's really good and he's really smart and he's really clever. He was really musical. There was no question of his musicality, you know, all those things. And I just looked at this and I just, and, and watched him and thought, you know, uh, he is a giant talent and he will fill a void. I mean, in a way it was almost, if I was thinking at all about the marketplace, I was almost thinking about it in that way. Like, well, there's nobody out there doing this and it, you know, and doing it certainly at this level and the level that he would be capable of. And in my mind, of course, I'm thinking what he would be capable of is, and his, and in his mind as well. I mean, we were totally thinking the same from, the first day was putting a band together and, and doing records that sound like the originals. So, you know, to sort of burst above that sort of novelty aspect of a guy with an accordion, you know. Was there precedent for that? Had anyone done parody songs? I mean, there were silly songs. Were there parodies that sounded like the originals and changed the lyrics? Alan Sherman. Alan Sherman He's did that. The, he was the guy. He did um, Hello Mudda, Hello Fodder, right? That's right. But that's not based on an original. That's the one I know, but that's not based on an original song, is it? Sure it is. Um, what is it? The hour, Dance of the Hours? or? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. The, oh, he did all parodies. That was, those were, every single one of his songs were, he took music from somewhere else. But they were not pop songs. That's interesting because to me, all these years later, I know Hello Mudda, Hello Fada, and I actually that has superseded the original. Yeah, like, I don't yeah, even yeah, know yeah. the thing it's based yeah, on. Yeah. And there's a lot of songs growing up with Weird Al. There's a lot of songs that when I hear the opening chords do on the radio, I immediately go to the Weird Al version instead of the actual actual one. Well, and but younger listeners today, mm-hmm. you know, they they don't know from Huey Lewis or the various people mm-hmm. that he's parodied. So it's kind of the same thing where they just figure it's based on a pop song, but they don't know who it is. Yeah, they don't know who it is specifically. So when you sign uh, an artist like Weird Al as a manager, what are what are your first steps? What do you, what do you how do you start conquering the world? Well, uh, you know, it went pretty quickly. I mean, we were pretty as quickly as I almost hesitate to say as it should have. Meaning he had that amount of talent and drive and interest in succeeding that it was you know it was relatively simple. I mean, basically the idea is well, you get a back in those days. You get a record contract, right? Mm-hmm. That's, what you, that's what you shoot for. Today, it's a lot different with, you know, the whole record industry uh, devolving. It's, um, it's kind of quite a sight to, uh, to watch as it goes on. But then it was all about getting a record contract. So 
we would, uh, what we, the first thing we did was, uh, you know, he came up with the songs, the new songs that he wanted to parody, um, and just figured it would happen from there, which it did. What happened was, the big, you know, the, the big song of the day was I Love Rock and Roll, Joan Jett's song. So he came up with I Love Rocky Road. And, uh, you know, uh, so what you do is we, and from day one, as anyone who knows Al's story, we've always asked for permission from the writers mm-hmm. and the artists. It's just Which legally you don't have to do. Well, it's tricky. Um, we don't know that for sure. No one's ever tested it to that degree. It's been tested in court at the Supreme Court, actually, um, with a case with Lou, uh, with Two Live Crew. Right, the Pretty Woman. And, and Roy Orbison, that's right. But it was highly, highly... Uh, selective in terms of the ruling that the court made. It was very nuanced. So you could look at that ruling and not necessarily instantly come to the conclusion that there's, you know, a First Amendment right here Mm -hmm. or anything like that. But nonetheless, we never decided we wanted to try it. I mean, Al, as a, uh, he is a very easygoing, non-confrontational kind of person. And in his mind, he never, he always wanted the artist to be in on the joke. And his type of humor was always so good spirited that we were, go, we just figured that they would be. And then they were. I mean, when we contacted almost, you know, I mean, 30 years ago to now, I mean, we can count on basically one hand the number of people who don't have a sense of humor who basically said no. Mm-hmm. Um, but so he just decided from day one, let's get permission. So I went to the writer of I Love Rock and Roll whose name was Jake Hooker. Not Joan Jett. Not Joan. She did not write it. Mm-hmm. That's right. So Joan would have nothing to say about, you know, even though, you know, I don't know if Jake ever actually went to Joan and said, by the way, there's this unknown guy named Weird Al who's going to do this parody. I hope you're cool with it. The, of the, you know, the song that I, Jake, wrote. I don't know that he ever actually did that, frankly. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, the songs are written or co-written by the stars, by the, by the artists. So you go to the writer of the song, not necessarily the uh, artist. But like I said, that's usually, usually the yeah. artist. But you're right. Technically, it's the writer who needs to grant the permission that we are looking for, that we don't want to confront. Right? So we went to Jake. And Jake said, I think this is not only a great idea, but I manage Rick Derringer. Now, Rick was the, uh, the lead guitarist, lead singer, and lead writer for an old band called the McCoys, who were famous for a song back in the 60s called Hang On Sloopy. Mm-hmm. And Rick is also a stellar guitar player. He played with Steely Dan, many others. And he was also a producer. And, Rick, and uh, Jake managed Rick. So he said, what about I package this with Rick? We'll produce it. We'll get a... You know, we'll, let's find a studio. I've got a friend I think who'll sign on, give us studio time on spec, which means we don't pay for it until we've made a deal. And, you know, it sounded like a great deal at the time. We had nothing else going. And that's the kind of thing you want to put together when you're looking for a deal, because that's the kind of tape you want to shop as opposed to something you've done in your basement. Mm-hmm. So we said, absolutely. We went into the studio. We cut a full album and used that to shop to the studios, to the labels. What other parodies were on that first album? Well, um... Is My Bologna is one of the My first, Bologna, right? which he had already done and recorded, of mm-hmm. course. Did you get in touch with the Knack after recording it to make sure that they were okay they with it? They were already okay with that. Through their story is that before I... This was like maybe, a, I guess it was, what, a year or so before I got with him. Um, he had on his own 
um, recorded uh, My Bologna in the college bathroom station across from the radio station where he was the DJ known as Weird Al. That's how he got his name. So um, he had recorded that. It became huge on Dr. Demento. The Knack heard about it. They were fans of Dr. Demento. So they heard about it. They called up Capitol Records and said, you got to sign this guy. And they said, and the Knack was gigantic at that time. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, when the, now the late uh, Doug Figer, he just passed very tragically. Oh, I know that. Yeah. Uh, uh, of cancer. Um, and he said to Capitol, you got to sign this guy. Capitol said, well, sure, okay, whatever. And, and sign him, you know, there's an actual contract, which actually a copy of which you can see in a, in a book that's coming out now called Weird Al the Book that Abrams is publishing. There's I want to read that book because I, I love Weird Al, obviously, and it's co-written with uh, Nathan Rabin, right? That's From uh, the AV Club, and I love, I love both those people so that they're coming together. Yeah, I, I can't yeah, wait to read that book. Right. And you can see the actual contract. You know, where you got paid a $500 advance and mm-hmm. for this. And they put out, but the contract was for a single. They never were serious about it, really. Um, I guess if he had blown up huge, they would have gotten serious about it, as any, anybody would. But it didn't really. They didn't promote it. It, it just kind of fizzled away. Um, so um, that had been done prior to my being mm-hmm. with him. Um, so that was on. So that, uh, that was on the album. So what were the other... Um, the new ones, uh, Stop Dragging My Car Around, sure. which was a parody of Stop Dragging My Heart Around with Tom Petty and Stevie Nicks. Did you get in touch with Tom Petty and Stevie Nicks? Because now I can imagine yeah, uh, it's, it was, it's, it's an honor to be parodied by Weird Al. I think it, I remember... No, and it was like, who? Yeah, yeah I, rem- I remember uh, sure. Chameleonaire saying like he knew he had made it when Weird Al did a parody yeah, of his song. Like the, fa- the most famous story of that is Kurt Cobain with Nirvana, who said, these, who said those exact right. same things. And so several people have said over the years, but I imagine when you're just starting out, you're getting a lot of... What is this? Right. Well, we, our joke was, and Tom, especially Tom Petty and um, that's right, and Stephen Nicks. These are these are all due respect to the knack. These are musical legends. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Well, the joke was um, we did this joke actually later in a a special that we did called um, the Complete Al, which was a takeoff on the Complete Beatles. Oh, I've seen it. So in that, there's this. Jo- I mean, there's a guy that plays me, um, and uh, we call him Barry Cohen. And Barry's on the phone, and he says, I managed this guy named Weird Al Yankovic. And then there's a pause, and he goes, what do you mean that's too bad? <laughs> and that really happened. That was based on you know, actual conversations. That's funny. Sure. But most people actually had a really good sense of humor. There were very few people, even when he was unknown, um, who, uh, who, who passed. I don't even remember if anybody passed on our first request that first time around. We had Rick Derringer producing us. You know, We had a studio to go into. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was a good thing. It was, it was, people had a generally good sense of humor, you know, and then, but then the single, you know, we did that and we shopped and I think, how did this work? We, at the time, I don't think we had cut Ricky. It was a, it was a parody of Mickey Mm -hmm. by Tony Basil. Um, pretty obscure these days. Most people wouldn't know. No, I think people know that. You think that's, people that, know? That's one of the, well, it's one of the big 80s hits, I think. Well, you there know? you go. If and you're I doing just, like, yeah. if you see an 80s music commercial, I'd say there's a one in three chance you're going to hear Mickey like as one of the songs scrolling past. Well then, yeah, good, good. So that's, you know, so we actually winding, rewinding back, what got us the deal was, well, the record deal was the parody of I Love Rock and Roll because we first shopped that tape without Ricky having been done 
got nowhere. Everybody passed. Jake was even trying to help us out. Jake had various connections. But one of Jake's connections was with this uh, independent label called Scotty Brothers. And their big hit um, was uh, Survivor, Eye of the Tiger. Great song. That was all they had, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys, it was a very, very small operation. But they, and they actually originally passed along with everybody else. We took the song, just the tape of that song at the time, radio would do stuff like, um, you know, uh, top 40 radio stations would have contests. At, uh, and this, this one, and I forget the name of the station, but, uh, the actual call letters. But it was a major station in L.A., which is obviously a big deal. And they would do like the, the, the funny countdown or something yeah, like this. Yeah, yeah. Where they would do like, you know, at 9 o'clock at night, they would, you know, just play these songs that got sent to them that were not, that were not pressed, that were not on, on anything, um, on any records. And we submitted I Love Rock and Roll, I Love Rocky Road, the, the parody of I Love Rock and Roll. This, the finished master that we had created, you know, with our, you know, with Rick Derringer in the studio. And it just, and it was, was crazy. I mean, it was number one instantly, and I, it might have been that for several weeks. But sir, it was enough where the, the guy at Scotty Brothers, who actually wanted to sign us the first time around, his name was Tad Dowd, and he couldn't sell it upstairs. This time around, with this kind of attention, Tad went back to his people and he said, look, I'm telling you, look what happened here, you know? Mm-hmm. It blew up, you know, you got it. And they were still, they were reluctant, but they were like, but Tad was a good friend of Tony Scotty, who was the, you know, they were like childhood friends. So Tony said to Ted, all right, this will be your baby, you know, we're, you know, let's see what happens with it. And so that's how the deal came. So by the time it came time to all that happened and, and we, t- you know, it came time to now look at, you know, what we're going to put out. Our, our goal was always and always has been, if you followed Alan, you know his story, you know, we always try and come as closely to the original as possible. By the time we were, we had got the deal and we were ready to come um, with a single "I Love Rock and Roll." The "I Love," yeah, "I Love Rock and Roll" was was long over, and we needed something fresh. So that's when we, you know, picked. We, you know, he scoured the market and and the charts, and he and he picked um, Ricky um, to be the sort of add-on, if you will, that would be the single. It would become the first video. It seems like it was kind of successful right out of the gate, pretty much. I mean, I imagine, especially with something this unusual, that there'd be a, a startup phase where you're trying to get the name out. But it sounds like um, even on this first album, you got airplay immediately. You got signed pretty quickly. Did it seem that way at the time? I'd say getting, you know, yeah, I would say getting signed quickly felt pretty quick. I mean, it, it, we were, uh, we really didn't, have to wait very long, you know, before that happened. I mean, uh, uh, that was a, that was a great thing. Um, you know, it depends on how you uh, how you define success. That first album, really, I mean, it sold. I mean, it, it charted. I think I have to go back. I have to remember whether it charted. That was a long time ago. Um, I think it did chart, but it wasn't what you'd call a hit album. I mean, it was it was a smash hit on Dr. Demento. I mean, you know, his audience went nuts for it. He, Al was now the star of, you know, he was already the star of the Dr. Demento show, and now, 
you know, he's got an actual album with, you know, with, you know, it's half parodies, half originals, you know, obviously all comedy. I mean, this is a big deal to his audience. It didn't really break hugely. I mean, yeah, we got some radio play on the morning shows, you know, for the most part, which to this day is pretty much all we ever get, all he ever gets. I mean, even with all of his success years later, you know, radio is, is so difficult. They, they, they're so narrow in how they view things and, and their formats and so forth. So, it, you know, it was successful enough certainly to do a second album. Mm-hmm. That's all we needed because then, the, you know, came Michael Jackson and he did and the rest was history, you know. Was there a point, was that the album when you realized, oh my God, this thing is taking on a life of its own? Well, yeah, because that was a top, I think it was top 10. I mean, it was a, it was a gold album. It was, it was you know, it, if it wasn't top 10, it was top 12. Or I mean, I think it was, it was somewhere there. The only reason that it stalled, it would have gone even higher, um, except for the fact that you couldn't, the record sold out so quickly everywhere that they ran out of stock. And it was a quote-unquote novel. It was perceived as a novelty song, uh, Eat It. Um, and so, you know, I guess by the time they would have pressed more and got more out, it, it would, and they did, but it would, didn't make a difference in terms of the additional charting any higher. But the album was gold, and yeah, that's when it went. You know, it, it was when, you know, at the time we were, he was the opening act for Dr. Demento, on these shows that we would go out and do, um, or the special guest, if you will. And then immediately after that, he became a headliner. You, you must be a very good manager to get Weird Al this popular. Not that Weird Al's not good, but to get, uh, again, something this unusual, this popular, this quickly. Is there specific, unique challenges to managing an act like that that you wouldn't have to deal with uh, if you were managing a more traditional act? You know... I don't think so. I mean, it it's, sounds n- it's like nice a of you to say, normal but story, really. it is a very normal story. And it, you know, uh, I, I have to say, um, as much as I certainly will acknowledge that I've been, that I've done well by him, and I think that probably shows in the fact that we're still together 30 years later. Yeah. He's an extraordinary talent. That's all there is to it. I mean, there's only one Weird Al. I mean, there was one, there was only one, no, I shouldn't say this. I was going to say there was only one Alan Sherman. There were a few. There was him. Yeah. There was the Smothers. There was, um, you know, Smothers Brothers. There was um, Stan Freeberg. You know, just a tiny group of comedy artists then. But music and radio got so narrow that to, to become successful at that level as a comedy artist, you've got to be incredible. And frankly, he is. So he... There was just never any doubt that he would that it was so simple and easy to see, frankly, that he that the level of his songwriting, the level of his parodies, um, the the way that he crafts a parody. I mean, when you go and you break down his music and the way he matches meter and the way he'll take a line of a song and he'll have a rhyme in there that will match the key rhyme of the original. There are things like that which might be obvious to his hardcore fans, but to the others who buy his albums just because they're, you know, he's charting and it sounds great, it's almost subliminal that, you know, they don't realize, but it's that's how good he is, you know? So it was just always clear that he had um, the talent to just to, to always do it, even at a time... You know, there was a, you know, a famous time uh, many years later where, um, you know, he had, uh, we stalled, basically. 
but even when we stalled, I mean, it, it was, he, he had had such uh, a sort of a one, two, three, four punch kind of a career. It's just, you know, it, it was never a question of, of, you know, does he have it and will he fade? You know, it was always just basically, um, he had the talent and when we, and whenever we experience bumps in the road, we just uh, overcome them. And it's not as much as it's through my persistence on a business level, it's because he always hands me the goods to work with. What is that persistence? Like, what do you actually do day to day as Weird Al's manager? What are the things you need to take care of? I don't know anything about managing yeah. anyone, really. Yeah. So it, it, it might just be the same as if I asked you what's it like to manage Stevie Nicks or whatever. But yeah. what what do you actually uh, do? Is Weird Al your only client? He is. He's actually been. I mean, I've only managed um, a couple of other people over. You know, I used to have a management company with a partner and, uh, and you know, employees. I answered the phone and staff and all that. Um, and there was a point at which I just decided, because I also, as, you, as you've announced early on, I mean, I direct but, uh, and produce, but I also do things that have nothing to do with Al. I've, I've done other things. I have other pet projects that I... So I, I pursue those things as well, because I love doing that. And he's always kept me so busy Mm-hmm. As an artist to manage, you know there. Yeah, there's been a time. Um, one in particular, um, back when I um, this would this would be um, in the what what would it be? I guess the mid or late '90s when I managed Miriam Makeba, who was a known as the um, uh, the queen of African music, and she was the uh, special guest on Paul Simon's Graceland tour. And so we we toured the world with Paul um, doing that tour. And that was really an incredible journey to uh, to be part of that. But that was only, I mean, mostly of, of my three decades of a manager. I mean, it's really mostly been him. He keeps me really busy. It's been basically a little cottage industry that he and I have sort of had going, you know. So to answer your question, um, it's really what any manager does. I mean, there's there's you, there are different, any career has various spokes in, of the wheel, you know. There's recording. There's live concerts and appearances. Um, there's um, his acting and voiceover work. Um, you know, there's there's just various things that he will do, and I'm basically corralling and promoting, if you will, um, and encouraging, if you will, you know, the work in all those different areas, combining with fielding the request. You know, now I mean, now being you know essentially a, an icon. Um, it's a combination of things we pursue and probably more so um, fielding the requests that come in that he either doesn't have the time or the interest to do, you know? Yeah, I, bet, I imagine there's a lot of them. Icon's the exact right word for it. Yeah. Did you get into directing because you needed to make some music videos and you were just there to direct them or was that something you were always interested in? You know, no, I can't say it was something I was always interested in. It was just... There was a certain conceit um, on my part that he went along with, in other words, and it's not, and I'm saying this not that it was against that conceit, it was simply that Al knew that I was a student of comedy, he knew that I, that, you know, my heroes were his heroes, and we knew that we were in something of a bubble, you know, that when it came time to do that, it's as much comedy as as much as it is about music. It's not just music videos, mm-hmm. you know? And if you don't nail the comedy, you're, it's not going to work. 
and you've got to be a comedy director for that, or or, or you simply got to know comedy. And the conceit, which was a true one, was that I knew comedy. I mean, I, I, I certainly recognized and understood the jokes. He knew that I knew the jokes. Mm-hmm. And that you were on the same page. And that we were on the same page creatively, totally. So from the beginning, now, with the, except I will say, with the first... It was, I guess, the first two videos we did. We had, you know, 10 cents to make them. The Ricky video and the I Love Rocky Road videos. I did not direct those. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, Those were done on video, which back then, you know, today doing something on video, that's cool. You know, I mean, that's what most people are doing now on HD, right? Mm -hmm. But back then, that's because you had no money. Because you'd shoot on film otherwise? You'd shoot on film, yeah. But, you know, that's before Rocky Road and... um, and uh, Ricky, 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 again, were before he really broke wide open with Eat It. And that was the first album. Did those first two videos get any airplay on MTV? Yeah, they did. Certainly enough to get him recognition. Mm-hmm. People look back and they go, wow, the first, you know, amongst the first, there were, you know, a handful of artists that were, that were propelling MTV, if you will. And Al really was one of those artists, even without having a hit song because they needed essentially they needed product for their for their video pipeline mm-hmm. and they had very few artists like him and even though they were done um, on video and for 10 cents they were good the video seemed like such a major part of Al's early success because he wasn't getting a lot of radio airplay and the videos were funny and they stood out among everything else on MTV exactly and uh, exactly. just a main part so which was the first one you directed so what happened was we um you know, we liked them. When I say they were good, they were good. They did the job, you know. But, you know, looking back at them now, you ser- anybody, any, any fan or, you know, anyone really can look at those two videos and clearly see the difference. And it's not necessarily because from then on I was directing. It's, it's I would, you know, it was a lot of it was because we were directing in a sense. I, I was directing in that we, when we, when we hit, we were we had enough momentum and we were given enough of a budget for eat it i mean after all it was michael jackson right so i mean these guys i mean they they sort of felt like you know well we got to step up a little bit here so they spent i think the budget on that was $40,000 which i you know wasn't a huge amount of money for then i think you know, a normal big budget video for a main artist was somewhere around a hundred, something like that. It's a decent special effect when he, you know, starts expanding in the beginning and the belt buckles start popping uh, and stuff. You're thinking of a different song. Wait, that oh, was, I'm thinking of Fat. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Eat it. What's the video for Eat it? So that was a, a parody of Beat It. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so. Embarrassed. <laughs> That's all right. It was a long time ago. Right? Yeah. Um, so. Um, what happens in the Eat It video? I'm, ha- I'm struggling to remember it. I'm sure I've seen it. When you say what happened to it, what do you mean? What happens in it? What, what is in the Eat, eat It video? Well, it's like the Beat It video. The famous, the most famous scene is oh, he's the at the spoons, pool table. right? Don't they do the spoon fight instead of the knives? Yeah, um, that's right. But there's probably the most famous scene is Michael in, in, in Beat It is at a pool. He's at a pool hall at a pool table doing all of his moves. And Al is at the same pool hall at the same pool table doing Michael's moves. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's the, there's the gang fight. In, in fact, we used, we called up, we always have, our bi- our hugest amount of fun is when we call up the people who were originally involved in the original proje- products uh, project. So for that one, for instance, Vince Patterson was the choreographer on the Beat It video for Michael. And we called up Vince and we said, hey man, you want to be in that Weird Al video? We're doing this parody of... Uh, 
of Michael and of your work, and you know, we'd love you to be in the video, and, and he agreed to do that. So he's actually in the Eat It video and was the choreographer for us on that. That's fun. Yeah, so I mean, we've done that over the years, right up till the last album where now Ray Manzarek, you know, mm -hmm. famously played on his Doors pastiche called Craigslist. Um, but, you know, that was, so that was, and that was part of a project. It gets a little complicated, but I'll do it without spending a lot of time. That was part of the Complete Al project, because at the same time, we were sort of propelling forward to sort of go to the next level. We all, once we had Michael's blessings, without even releasing the record, we felt like we would have something. We didn't know to what extent it would be a phenomenon, but we felt like it was going to be something, something much different than the first one. And off of that, we were able to sell this concept for this mockumentary called The Complete Owl. No, I'm getting ahead of myself. You know what? I think, it's, you know, so I get embarrassed, right? Because this is a long time ago. No, I think Edith was... I take that back. I think he, I think he, we did as a solo video, and it was off of that that we then created. It was off of the Dare to Be Stupid album that we created the mockumentary Complete Al. So I'm so I need to backtrack there. So we we made that video. Um, I, the reason I was thinking that is because I was supposed to direct it with a buddy of mine named Robert K. Weiss, who's still one of my dear friends. Bob was the producer of Kentucky Fried Movie and Blues Brothers movie, and later went on to do all the Naked Gun movies and all mm -hmm. that stuff. There was... Uh, Wait, is that how Weird Al ended up in all the Naked Gun movies? Yes. Awesome. Absolutely. I always wondered about that. Although it was never a stretch. Bob would just, you know, as the producer, right, right. you know, would say to the Zuckers, you know, hey, you, you know, you guys... Al's a buddy, you know, you want to do a cameo with him. They'd always go, absolutely. And I think towards the end, towards the last one, they were requesting him. Bob wasn't, I think at that point, he didn't even need to bring it up because the Zuckers love Al, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's all the same yeah, kind of comedy family. Match, right? of course. Yeah. So, so I, I, so I ended up doing it myself. I would never directed before. But Al and I, it was, you know, it was almost kind of a, I mean, I hate to say it, it was almost paint by number. Because what it is, is the comedy's got to work. So he and I, at that point, we were, I wouldn't go so far as to call us comedy writers, but, or, or partners, uh, you know, writing partners, but we certainly were creatively collaborating. Um, where I would, you know, I would, uh, I would contribute jokes and I would, con I would contribute comedy to it. Um, it was fun for me. I mean, years later, it's clearly not too much later. It got to a point where I needed to step away from that because mm -hmm. he was clearly a genius to be reckoned with. And it was not my place, essentially, to be his comedy writer, although a, a partner, although, you know, obviously when we get to UHF, I'll talk about that. We did that. But but the I, the point is that we would create the, you know, together the storyboards and we just needed to execute those. And when you are f physically executing the shot, at that point, you're watching the comedy. Mm -hmm. And if the comedy plays, you've got the shot and you move on to the next one. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, so in a way, it's almost like, you know, Hasbro's comedy paint by number kind of thing. I don't make it mean to make it sound like anybody can do it because you've got to certainly understand comedy to be able to do that you just saved some listener like $120,000 on NYU film school maybe 
But I think the thing is, even if you didn't study formal directing, like you obviously studied comedy and like yeah. all those, you know, your training was watching and just absorbing all that sure. comedy over the years. So then when you put a camera in front of it, it's just, you know, looking for. Well, look, and it was not only that when we're doing a parody. I mean, it's it's different when we were doing uh, his originals like Dare to be Stupid and One More Minute. But especially when we're doing a parody, we had a monitor on the set we would we would cue up Michael Jackson's original video. Mm-hmm. We would match the shot. That's part of the joke is you match the shot. So there's nothing for me to do except to make sure to look and, and make sure that the shot is matched properly and that it's blocked properly, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a small thing, and, and you know, yeah. I, I did it well, and, and I'm, I'm proud of my work. Um, but I had a lot of help from Michael and from all the other people, mm-hmm. you know, who would um, give us that. I guess it was, it was different. You know, you've got to establish and create shots when you have an original. And it's not a parody. But know? even those uh, ones that are originals are they're based like uh, Dare to Be Stupid's, like based on the aesthetic of a Devo video, right? Totally. So you have you have some sort of blueprint to work with. That's right. All right, we got to talk about UHF because you you broke the UHF seal and brought it up because in addition to managing. Uh, this artist was a huge part of my uh, life growing up and still to this day you also happen to direct one of my all time favorite movies UHF Uh, I suspect I may have seen UHF more than you have do you you think that's possible? (laughs) oh I'm sure it's possible I've definitely seen UHF more than you have I'm sure it's possible you know it's it's a weird thing that a lot of people have about watching their own stuff yeah yeah sure Um, tons of years went by without me watching UHF and part of that was I, I suppose I fully admit it was part of the quote-unquote commercial failure right. of the project that made it difficult to revisit it. Um, and I didn't for you know quite some time um, until I did fairly recently, I guess it was. Uh, not to say I didn't watch it at all in this gap, but it, it were, a couple of years ago, um, some guys did a screening of it in uh, Austin, Texas. Was it at um, the Alma Draft House? That's right. Yeah, I love the Alma Draft House. I think he actually talked. We had someone from the Alma Draft House on the show, and I think he—I don't remember—he was talking about that screening specifically, but uh, I think I—it it definitely came up. And I think it was when I asked him uh, what one of his favorite shows he's put on was, and I think that was—that was one of them. It was great. I mean, they couldn't—they—they they knew they couldn't fit it in their normal four hundred seat theater. They moved it to the Paramount, I think it was called, which was a thousand seat theater. They sold it out in like 10 minutes and broke their server. So they added a second screening. But part of what sold it out, I guess, is because they invited he and I to, uh, to do a Q&A afterwards, you know? What so, was it like watching the movie with a crowd? Well, that's my really? point. I mean, I'm jumping ahead, you know, uh, ahead of the story of how it got made. Yeah. But, uh, but you're asking about watching it. And I hadn't watched it in really a long time. Um, until that point, and I was so I was there. I was booked, right? I'm, and I'm going to talk about it. And I'm thinking, you know, I, well, I, I really, I, I suppose I could go out and then come back, and I could still do a Q and A with and know all the stories. And I, I mean, I certainly know the movie well. Um, but I decided I was going to watch it with the audience, um, and it was it was just a cathartic experience, actually, because. I genuinely laughed out loud. Well, part of uh, the thing about that movie, which is, I'm, you know, at the risk of, um, you know, sort of blowing it up. Um, you know, that's your job to do, not mine. But, but oh, I'll do it. But the thing about the audience, and I was right there with them, which is an astonishing thing to me, is that 
they, the laughter in the audience was not as much as there was the Rocky Horror thing of the people who knew the lines and would, you know, and recite it. Equally so was genuine, um, fresh laughter. It wasn't the crowd, it was the crowd being preached to, but you, and you can feel it, you know, laughter, you know, you know what laughter sounds like, you know, the laughter that what it sounds like when you knew it was coming and you have to, you know, that's almost more of a cheer. And in fact, oftentimes it is a cheer mm-hmm. for the, for the line you're waiting for. Yeah. I remember that. I saw, there was some of that. At the, but the otherwise it sounded genuinely spontaneous. It blew my mind and I was right there with them. I was watching the movie right there with them and I was spontaneously laughing and it was so cathartic um, and it was such a great experience frankly um, because it it held up I mean there's things sure we'd probably do differently now but in general I mean it's it really for it was the movie we essentially wanted to make and it really held up and so that was that's certainly what it was like for watching it um, that night yeah I think one reason that it plays like that is because it's so dense with jokes and even if you've seen it a hundred times, there's always going to be a few jokes that you haven't, that you don't remember that just because there's so many of them. And there's so many jokes working at so many different levels that I remember when, uh, when I saw it with an audience that you could see, you could hear some people laughing at some of the more slapstick stuff, but there's also silly stuff that gets like a different pocket of the audience and there's references that not everyone gets. There's, uh, always, always all different types of laughter, different types of jokes whenever the movie plays. It must, I mean... What was it like when it came out? Because it was it was a commercial failure. Well, you know, I mean, it's going to sound like an excuse, but it really is. I mean, what happened was we made the movie we pretty much wanted to make. I, I, I feel confident saying that. I mean, the studio, Orion, I mean, you know, they were known for Woody Allen and, you know, for, seri- for I want to say serious comedy makers, mm-hmm. um, if there is such a thing. Uh, there is such a thing, actually. Yeah, people, are very, people are very serious about their comedy. We were mm-hmm. too, and we still are, and he still is. We made the movie we wanted to make. We were pretty pleased with it, you know? We were very optimistic and hopeful for it. We didn't know what we had, but we thought we had something, for sure. And what happened was Orion did a test screening, or a couple of test screenings. They were in a lot of trouble as a studio. They were putting out movies that were... They had just spent an enormous amount of money in marketing and in the movie uh, of um, Dennis Quaid in Great Balls of Fire. Mm-hmm. They were already in trouble. They, 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 were, had, a, they had a streak that was a, a bad streak, basically, commercially. They were already in trouble. They, that movie really hurt them badly, and we were next up. There was rumors that they were going out of business. Anyway, they do a test screening with us, and our test numbers went through the roof. You know, you know, they they, you know, they hand out cards at these. If for anybody who's ever been in a test screening, they know what happens. You go to these things, and they hand you a card, and you felt, did you like this movie on a scale of one to five? What you know, how would you rate it? You know, what what are your comments? All this sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Anyway, they get rated, um, and we were the highest rated movie for Orion since RoboCop. Wow. And these guys were going out of business. Mm-hmm. So they're like, oh, my God, we've got, you know, we've got this, we've got a sleeper here, you know. In other words, they, they, not to say that it was ever perceived necessarily as, you know, something, let's put it this way, I don't think they, you know, they didn't think they had a hit movie necessarily, I think they had a nice little comedy. 
Mm-hmm. That would do. That would sort of do nice business, and we thought probably the same. That would be enough to just get us to our next movie. The same way um, that Al's first album got his got him to his next album. In that sense, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's probably the kind. Of, if we had expectations, they were kind of like that, and so. But with these numbers, um, Orion, they didn't have the wherewithal to market it really properly, although we got full-page ads, certainly. I mean, I'm, I, I don't want to completely fault their marketing. But, you know, they, it's, it was more like, that. you know, they did a decent amount of marketing for what they could afford, and they put us out at the same time that Lethal Weapon, Indiana Jones, Do the Right Thing, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and Batman. Batman. Yeah, that's what I remember. We're all out at the exact same time. So that's, it's just a crowded market. Forget it, man. You can't compete with that. Because it was a summer movie. Yeah. You can't, I mean, you simply can't compete with that. I yeah. mean, looking back, I almost think like, I mean, if we had, not to say that they would have listened to us, but I mean, we just thought, we just went along with them. You know, look, we felt, you know, blessed and honored to have our first movie and to have a you know a real studio behind us and to think so highly of it you know that of the movie that they put out in that in that market i suppose if we had really you know uh in hindsight we could have you know we could have screamed um bloody murder and said don't you dare do this it's going to kill the movie you would have thought they would have known that you know it's like how you look back and you go what were they thinking you know mm-hmm. nothing can compete i mean you look at those movies i mean they were gigantic yeah those are still it's crazy that all those movies were out at the same at time at the exact same time and uhf the best of them all <laughs> thank you it's <laughs> number one uh so we got creeped there's a great cast in that movie. A lot of uh, before they were famous people. And I remember when I saw a screening that you hosted, you told a great story about Michael Richards and uh-huh. how he got involved in the movie. And I was wondering if you could relay that story uh, to the people listening to this. Well, yeah, Michael, um, uh, that I, I credit Al with, um, you know, uh, with that one in terms of the, he, from the beginning, we, when um, the first his first notion, actually, I mean, he had certain casting ideas all along. We both did, mm-hmm. um, but not a lot of them. And frankly, I, that was the key one because Stanley, we knew, was the uh, the flashpoint, the, the comedic flashpoint, if you will. You know, one of the things we may have done differently, had you know, looking back, and I'm sure we would have done differently later, is. Al almost played straight to Stanley in a way, mm-hmm. you know, but he, he constantly set Stanley up for the jokes, you know. But we, there was, I mean, uh, that's, a, I guess, another story. But, but um, again, we were pretty happy with what, with, it, with certainly nobody twisted our arm. That wasn't anybody else's idea to write the script that way. When we were, so when we wrote the script, um, the, 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 the uh, role of Stanley Spadowski, his original idea, which I totally went along with, I thought it was a great idea, was Chris Lloyd from the Back to the Future uh, uh, movies. Sure. And, um, you know, it's sort of one of those serendipitous, I think, things that Christopher Lloyd turned us down. He just... You know, he wouldn't even read. You know, uh, in when you make movies, what you do is you invite the people who you're interested in and or the people who are being pitched to you by their agents and so forth. They come in and they, quote-unquote, read for you from the script. Um, and um, uh, Chris didn't even, he wouldn't even read, you know. 
So, uh, and we couldn't get him to read. I think we begged probably a little bit because we were so, God, we, you get so used to getting your way after a while. We're really spoiled, I got to tell you. Yeah. I mean, looking back over, you know, the years, it's really quite remarkable how spoiled we In what are. ways were you spoiled? Just, you know, the, of all the people who say yes. And, and, mm-hmm. and there's sort of a charmed, I mean, Al's got, if you look at it sort of, uh, you know, in a, uh, if you step back and look at it, I mean, it's very charmed. It's certainly deserved because, as I said at the very beginning, he has the talent that is deserved of that. But it's also very charmed. The people who have gone along with the joke, the people who appreciate the joke, the people who appreciate him, the kinds of, you know, it's just, I don't know. I mean, what can you say? It's uh, when you have a lucky, you look back and you just, you know, see so many. Luck and timing, people say in the business, has so much to do with, you know, with how the business works, and you need talent to go along with that to, to um, last uh, the amount of years that he has. So he has all those things, but the luck and timing have a lot to do with it. So anyway, um, that's what I mean by, um, by that. And and so we we were used to people saying yes, but uh, he didn't. And Al right right away went to let's try and get Michael Richards. He was a giant fan of Michael's from this old TV show called Fridays, mm-hmm. um, which is a great show. It didn't last long on the air. It was a competitor to Saturday Night Live. Right. That was um, Larry David. Larry I was David on that. was on that Andy show. Kaufman. That's right. That's like the, Michael Richards is in that scene in Man on the Moon with. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So I mean, it's a legendary show, but a lot of people don't know it. Mm-hmm. But. It was what's and what I say when what was sort of serendipitous about that is that it's funny, you know, we had this. You see, Chris Lloyd as the character he played as the professor in in um, Back to the Future, Back to the Future, and we saw him sort of doing that as Stanley. Mm -hmm. Well, to be honest, it's not real original, is it? And have we got Chris Lloyd? He probably would have said, I'm not going to do that same character for you, I'm going to do something else. You know, Mm -hmm. we never got that far. But that's how we saw him, you know, because it just would have fit. And if you think about it, that take on the on the janitor would have been pretty cool. It also would not have been very original. I'm not saying, I mean, Chris Lloyd would have been phenomenal. I mean, obviously it would have been great. But Michael, it was more about recognizing his core talent as a comedian and what on earth will he do with this thing? We knew he would be physical because Michael's a very physical comedian. Mm-hmm. And when Michael came in, he talks a lot about his influences and I guess um, Marcel Marceau and, and there's, a, uh, I think, another French uh, actor named Tati who was very f- familiar to uh, that audience. You know, Michael is, was, is a brilliant, he's like a ballet dancer. I mean, he's brilliant physically. Mm-hmm. We knew that he would bring that to the party, you know. So we invite Michael to come in. And... Um, Michael did come in. He, I think he came in. God, did he come in or he, ref- he either, you know what? All I know is that we had to bring him back. I, I, what I'm remembering, I believe he came in and then we offered him the part. He passed. And we were like, that can't be. What, what, I mean, cause it's not like he had a huge career. We just, we couldn't grok that one. It was sort of like, what's that about? I mean, this is a decent script. He can really have a lot of fun with this. Mm-hmm. We don't understand this, frankly. This just doesn't make sense kind of thing, you know? So we told the casting director, you got to go back to him and tell him this, to come back. You've got to just do whatever it takes to get him back, you know, in here so we can talk to him. 
and it's funny that's sort of all it took it's not i mean we did a little bit of conjoling but basically it was almost like when he walked through the door the second time it was like okay you want me that bad you must the, i think that translated in his mind to he recognized the part he recognized the value of the part he recognized our value that we placed in him because as any actor, you know, you're always fearful of not being able to do what you want to do and being able to collaborate at the level you want to collaborate with, you know, with the directing, uh, with the director, uh, with the producers. So once he came in, it was funny, it was a whole different demeanor the second time where he was joking and um, I think even at that time, you know, there's this thing about that he did for that part where he wore these like prosthetic teeth. Mm-hmm. And if you look, you know, now for people who don't really realize that, when you go back and you look at the movie, you know, you'll see, I mean, his front teeth are like definitely pronounced. And that's because I think he actually even brought those in when he came back the second time. And he was like ready to go. But the first time he just like, he just passed for kind of, I don't know if he was, I don't know what that was about. We frankly never asked him. We were just happy to have him. And he's so funny in that movie too. He's, it's such a... It's great because it's a, a funny Weird Al movie and there's all these funny parodies. And then you almost forget that there's also this incredibly funny performance from him and it probably his best performance outside of uh, Seinfeld. Yeah. Uh, and it just, uh, I don't know, it just knocks you out every time you see it. Yeah. It's, it's great. He, he was amazing. So you mentioned earlier that you co-wrote the movie with Al. Was that the only thing besides the videos which you presumably collaborated on? Was that the only thing that you actually co-wrote with him uh, in this whole partnership? I think so. So oh, I mean, it's it's if you don't if you count the amount of collaborating we did on the on the music videos um, to a certain point, it was is a kind of a writing. Certainly, yeah, yeah, of know? course, of course. Um, but even well before he took over the directing reins of his own videos, well before that, he was essentially writing all of the mini. Even before he took over the reins, there was a point much earlier than that where where it was clear he didn't need me, um, nor did I even, I felt like I, it was not even my bid to intrude. I felt like, you know, it was like he was so crystal clear, just as he is in his songwriting. He doesn't need, you know, any co-writers in his songwriting. He never has it. He never will. And he really didn't need anybody to help him with the storyboards of every joke that would play in every frame of the videos. At a certain point, we knew that, and, and it was clear, and so he would be the sole writer of those and the sole you know, of storyboard artist for those. Um, not like he would actually write, draw the storyboards, but you know, he would, mm-hmm, he would, yeah. write, he would write them. Um, I don't think I wrote it. Yeah, I don't think so. I think the, I think that's right. What was co-writing the movie like? Because it's very much got Weird Al's voice. Nothing personal, but yeah, you know, it's of like course. obviously very much a Weird well, that Al movie. Was, clearly, that was my job. Because right. look, look, I was wearing, this at the same time, I'm wearing the hat of his manager. Mm-hmm. So it's funny, and that and that hat always takes precedence. Anytime we collaborate on anything, we've done it a few times since. We just did it recently on a 3D movie that um, a couple years back that he did. We did it was a theme attraction called Al's Brain. It was 11 minute um, 3D movie about the human brain. That was a very very cool project. That was actually um, I, I I kind of thought it up and pitched it and got it sold and and it, but you know. Even still, I mean, I was more actively involved in a way um, as a producer, but even there, 
I was still wearing, I'm always wearing my manager's hat first because that does come first. So I, when we were writing the script, um, you know, when you say, you know, it has his voice, that was my first job was to make sure it did. Mm-hmm. You know, and that anything I was going to offer needed to fit that. And I think I, at that point, I think I, I did and, and still do know his voice well enough that I was able to contribute like that, mm-hmm. you know. The actual process itself was um, was interesting, funny, and excruciating, actually, in a way. And the reason I say that is because we have very, very different styles. Um, he is intensely methodical. Um, Al has notebook after notebook of notes that he keeps, you know, on any project that he does and any song that he writes. He is like almost like the ultimate nerd that way, you know, where he he's just so he's scientific with his comedy. And a lot of that is his his field work. Any scientist does all the field work, right? Mm-hmm. That's what that's and that's his you know, his process when he's writing and when he's creating something. So the way that translates in the and I'm very different. I just kind of shoot from the hip and and I figure we'll sort of go back and make it better later, you know? Mm-hmm. So I want to just kind of be rolling along. But what would happen is either one of us might throw out a joke in the room or a line in the room, and suddenly he'd stop and he'd look off in the distance for like 10 minutes at a time. There'd be just silence in the room. I'm sitting there waiting for him while his wheels are turning, you know? And then after like 10 minutes, he might go, yeah, that works. You're like, no, that doesn't work. Just crunching the numbers, kind of. Crunching the comedy numbers. That's exactly right, you know? Where for me, it wasn't, it was like I said, it's just a style thing. For me, it was more like, like, let's get through it, we'll do a rewrite later. You know, let's just keep like, let's be more spontaneous, you know? And that's not how he works. But we got through it, it was fine. I would say it got strained a little bit, you know, weeks in. It took us probably about a month or so to write this script, and probably... A couple, two, three weeks, and towards the end, it was getting, he and I were both feeling it. We were like already joined at the hip as manager and artist with, in a non-traditional way, meaning cause I, because I have always at some level collaborated in the comedy, if you will, mm-hmm. even on a purely business level, if that makes sense. Is that unusual to have that kind of relationship between a manager and an artist where you're also sometimes co-writing, you're sometimes directing their videos? Yeah, I think so. I think it's usually, I think it's mostly a business partnership. Mm -hmm. I mean, most managers see their client as, God, I I mean, I hate to say it, but it's like a, it's a commodity. And I'm not saying that again, saying that anything against managers. It's just like the same way the record labels do that. I think managers clearly understand, they have to understand the art more in order to remain in a strong relationship with their artists. You can't just simply ignore the art. You've got to understand it as best you can. But so many managers come at it recognizing a commodity and then looking to see how you market that commodity. And, and, and yeah, you know, for me and Al, I understood the comedy 
I understood his art to a point where we could collaborate and I could help him maintain his voice at those times that we did. And I always help him maintain his voice when there might be certain things where, you know, like, you don't want to do this. This is not your voice, you know. Now, I don't have to do that that often because he also knows that. I mean, he rarely ever puts himself in a position to shoot himself in the foot that way, you know. But yeah, I guess so. I mean, there's only a, a, I mean, that that is measured in the longevity, right? And yeah. It's, you know, I mean, the most famous manager, I suppose, was um, and still is um, uh, John Landau for Bruce Springsteen. You know, I think Landau, you know, when he saw, you know, it's, I think the, his take on Bruce when Bruce was first starting was really, in essence, if you boil it down, was my take on Al. How so? Well, and just that, you know, he saw the... You know, he saw, you know, the future of rock and roll is Bruce. You, you know, he understood Bruce at, I think, at a level that was more than Bruce is a commodity. Mm-hmm. And, and Bruce has, has had, you know, John Landau was his manager now all these years. I saw Al as like the future of comedy in a way, you know. Um, it wasn't just like, well, here's an interesting act that can maybe sell a few records and then I'll... You know, while, when you you know when you when you think that way, you're also scouring the market for who else can I manage and how can I parlay managing this client into another client. I never did that actually. It's funny. I never really. He always kept me so busy and so interested and so happy, being able to work with his product, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's such fun. I mean, what a great gig to have, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. You, know. you were so right that he uh, was the future of comedy. There was uh, a lot of foresight because now everyone's doing funny music videos on the internet. Uh, I've done a handful myself, and uh, it, there's just everywhere now. Like what he what he was doing, uh, so many more. You see so many more people doing now. Do you feel that pressure that there's more competition? No, you know what? I don't feel like there's competition. You can't compete with Al. I think that's true. He I would agree. never say that. Um, and, and in a way, I suppose it's, you know, uh, look, I, I, when I say that, it's, you know, it's why have there not been any other parody artists over the years when there were even, you know, as much of a niche, a, a niche as he has had over the years. You know what I mean? Because there's only one Al. There's only one guy who is so talented and so deep comedically at that level. You know, I mean, that's... So you can't compete. You you know what I mean? It's just, um, and we certainly welcome and admire. I mean, there's all the people that are doing it now. I think the reason Al's so unique, or one the one reason there's only one Al is like you were saying before, there are a lot of Alan Shermans. There are a lot of guys who had a hit here or there, but Al has had sustained hits over over three decades now. Is that right? Right. Yeah, we just had over three decades, uh, and he's still putting out stuff. The longevity comes from a degree of talent that. After a while, again, competition almost doesn't come into it. Yeah. It simply doesn't because when you're that good, you're in a class by yourself. You're one of very few people, you know, um, that has a certain degree and level of talent that's really by yourself, you know? Speaking of his longevity, Rolling Stone recently did a uh, survey for to find out people's weir- favorite Weird Al songs, which I think is really interesting because I think if you did... Favorite Bruce Springsteen songs. I could probably guess what the top five are going to be. But favorite Weird Al songs. There's a, a, a large catalog there. Did you see this survey? I did. Uh, I was going to ask you, uh, were you surprised uh, with the results? I was going to ask you to guess them. I guess you must have seen That's probably your job as manager to like be on top of that kind of thing. 
Were you surprised at uh, the results? Do you remember them? Um, remind me. Okay. <laughs> Number five was yeah. The Saga Begins from 1999. And again, yeah. the, I'm giving the years just because this spans such a long amount of time. Yeah. Saga Begins, 1999. Yeah. Eat It, 1984. Albuquerque, 1999. Yeah. White and Nerdy, 2006, and number one. You know what number one is? No, it could, it could be anything. It could be anything. Any guesses? Well, I suppose I would have guessed, uh, gee, I don't know, Amish Paradise. Amish Paradise, number yeah. one. I yeah. would, I mean... Well, Amish Paradise, you know, it's almost like the, it's almost like the chart that you just read back mirrors from a sales standpoint, almost. Even Albuquerque, because that's not a parody. Well, no, you're right about that. Albuquerque is yeah. kind of an outlier there. You're right about that. But uh, generally, those are five, I guess, four of his biggest selling songs. And there were some other ones, like One More Minute, which I imagine was probably not one of, again, just because it wasn't no. a parody. That was number 10, I believe, which is a real fan's choice there. Uh-huh. Do you have a favorite Weird Al song? Do I? It's usually an original. Well, you know what? Yeah, I think my favorite song might be Craigslist. But you see, the reason for that is very personal. I mean, growing up, I was a giant Doors fan. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw them live several times. And, you know, that's part, sort of part of my background is like 60s counterculture combined with modern comedy, right? Mm-hmm. So he was really, um, uh, he was really uh, preaching to the choir with me on that one. You know, I just, I, th- I thought he nailed it. I was probably his toughest critic, even though it's not, that's not my job to do that, nor was it my intention, nor was I positioning myself to do that. But internally, I was feeling like I'm going to be his toughest critic. You just got to nail this one. Because I I just, I knew the doors. I knew them really well. How did you get Ray Kazmarek involved? He was the original keyboardist for the doors. And he plays on the the men's Eric. That's right. Uh, How did he get involved? Well, it's the same. Whenever we get anybody involved at this point, it's just you call them up. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, it's usually I'll do it. You know, I'll go to them or the manager if he knows them or he has a phone number or if he has, you know, a contact with Ray, I believe. How do we get Ray? I don't remember if it was him or me. Do you try that with every song, though? Or were you just. No, 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 no. So for this one, you were just like, we should get, because the yeah. doors have such a unique keyboard. Yeah, exactly. He was like, God, that is so iconic, to use the word iconic again. Mm-hmm. I mean, the no, sound, no, I think, I think that's a fair use I, of it. Oh my God. I mean, it's sort of like, yeah, it's like, he's got to do that. Same thing, you know, when we offered, you know, the, it's um, on the, uh, for UHF, when mm-hmm. we did Money, Money for Nothing parody. Uh, Mark Knopfler plays Mark Knopfler. I mean, that was, that's a great example where, you know, we I talk about an iconic part and, a, and an iconic sound. And, you know, it's like, and we were still, we certainly weren't cocky enough at that point to think, oh, well, he'll certainly do it. We, we thought we had a good chance. And we threw it out to Mark. And the answer that came back was Mark said, from his manager was Mark says he'll do it as long as he gets to play guitar on the parody track. Do you think it was just something where... He wanted to be a part of it because he thought it sounded fun, or was he like, "No one plays my riff but me"? I think it was the first one. He's got a. If you know anything about him, you know that he. I mean, everything I've ever read about Mark, I've never had the pleasure to meet him, but um, it sounds like he's a really sweet, you know, cool guy mm-hmm. who I think just got the joke. Uh, but actually, you know what? It's not simply my intuition about that. I will tell you that. Um, it's when I got the call from his manager to, to say that he would do it. Um, 
he said, I, you know, he calls me up and he says, the first thing he said to me, one of the things we did is we had sent him a copy of this book now that costs, you, if you want to find it, it's, you have to like pay $1,000 for it on eBay. It's called The Authorized Owl, which was a, um, a companion piece to The Complete Owl. Man, I thought I had every piece of Weird Owl memorabilia. I don't have that one. Yeah, I have The it, Complete Owl. If I, you go on eBay, you'll see it's selling for $1,000. Yeah, it's crazy. So anyway, um, we sent, it was right around the time it had come out. So I always, you know, I'm always, you know, as I'm doing my managerial duty. And if I'm pitching something, quote unquote, here's his latest album, here's his latest this or that, you know. And so I, I sent the manager and I sent Mark, um, pardon me, I sent him uh, the, the authorized owl. And uh, so when his manager called me, the first thing he said was, I can't get Mark Knopfler to stop laughing. He's got this book in his hands. I can't tear, I can't tear it out of his hands. We got to go do a show. He's having the time. He's having a total ball reading this book, you know? Mm -hmm. So that just told me where his head was at, right? So I think it was the former. I think he wanted to be in on the joke to the point where he wanted to play on the album because it was just a really cool thing. Did he know that one was going in the movie? I don't recall. How did you end up... I always wondered how that specific song ended up in the movie because it's uh, kind of an unusual one for Al because it's uh, one song... It's not... It's a parody, but it's like the music from one song with the lyrics from another and he just cross those two over as opposed to writing his own lyrics to it. So I just thought that was an interesting choice. Because, well, it would have been an interesting choice if it had just been released as a single without a movie for that same reason, right? Yeah, and there's other ones. And I guess the other one's TV theme. The one I'm thinking of is a Brady Bunch That's theme. That's right, set yeah. to, What is that set to? Uh, it's a, no, it's the, I'm doing the same thing yeah. you are. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, dance. Oh, safety dance. Safety dance. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, he just—that's how you know. I can't, uh, you know. Yes, his. I I can't um, interpret how his brain works for you on that level. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. When he comes up with an idea like that, it's just like you know, you just. He just goes for it. I didn't. I didn't question him at the time. It fit. You know what I mean? It's sort of like. He, and it always fits because the way he constructs his comedy always fits because he's totally true to himself. But how did you select that song for the movie? Because um, the movie kind of stops and it's like a music video. Well, and, uh, yeah. You know what? It was total, again, to use that word, serendipity, um, it was a combination of it was, a, I mean, Money for Nothing was a giant hit at the time. So it made sense. If we're, we're, we're going to put, a, you know, a parody uh, we want to. We got to do a, a, a music video, right? Got to do it. For Obviously, movie, yeah, yeah. Right. I think they would have actually liked us to have done more. And we said from the outset, we're not going to. We're not going to. It's not going to be a square peg in a round hole that way. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just going to do whatever feels organic to the film. And so we only ended up having that one idea, for or he did, I guess, for that one song. It was a huge song at the time, and it was about TV. Yeah, so if you know his idea was to turn it wasn't to and you know so it was to turn it into a TV themed thing. UHF is all about TV. I mean, talk about a perfect fit. Mm -hmm. So, 
It was just a perfect fit, period. It's a great part of the movie. And again, to use the word iconic, it's such an iconic music video. Yeah. There's a great story behind that, by the way, which is we had run out of movie at that point, uh, run out of money at that point. Um, it was one of the last things we did. Um, and there was a really good friend of mine and, and of ours named Rick Morris who ran the local post house where you do post-production for videos. Mm-hmm. And for TV shows and things like that, Rick was a great fan, a great friend, and he, and I called him um, because we knew we we needed that uh, we knew that the, so much of the expense was going to come in the animation. Mm-hmm. Animation is a huge expense, you know. Especially that was computer animation at a time when there was not a whole lot of computer animation. That's exactly right. And I, I don't know how it came about, but I called him saying, you got any ideas for this? Because we're out of money. We got to do this. And we, don't, and we don't know how to do this, how to accomplish this. With, you know, this would normally be a two to $300,000 movie, uh, uh, video, easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, and it was just, again, this is the part of the luck and the timing and having a charmed life, I guess. Now, it's not to say everything's gone our way. But certainly a lot has. And this is a great example where he said, you know, I'm looking to buy out my partners right now. I know how to do that. And I can, that meaning the computer animation that they did for Money for Nothing. I can do that at home on my computer. You pay me a fraction of what you'd pay a computer animation house. But for me, it's going to be my down payment on on mm-hmm. buying these guys out. So I'll do it at home for you after work. So it's just like this guy who was capable of doing it and just needed a sudden influx of cash. Exactly right. And that's uh, now it's in the movie. That's right. That's cool. You mentioned earlier that you have some non-Al-related side projects. What are those? Are they funny? Yeah, a couple. Well, let's see. How many? I mean, my first one was, I mean, I'm not going to recount them all, but actually my very first one was a was not funny per se, but it certainly had lots of comedy in it. It was a, I packaged a show. Um, the idea was um, I had a client who I managed among Al as my first clients named James Hall, who was a, who was a, uh, uh, a an expert in TV commercials. And a good friend of mine who later became my partner in my management company at the time was the head of current at NBC, which means you are overseeing the, the shows that are on the air. Brandon Tartikoff was the, um, was the, uh, head, he's a f- sort of legendary head of a network. Mm-hmm. You know, he's passed away long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but Brandon was the head of the network. Hamilton was my friend. I called him up. I said, I got this wacky idea. Has anybody ever done a TV show on like the best TV commercials? And he paused and he's like, duh. You know, it's like, I, I can't. Why? No, nobody's ever done that. And why on earth has no one ever done that? And um, it's a really good idea. There's got to be a catch to it. Like probably getting the rights is going to be impossible. Let me do some research. He calls me back. A day or two later, and he says, well, I did the research, and there's not a problem as long as we can get the rights, and we don't think you or I can get the rights. We don't think you'll have a problem getting the rights because this is a tribute. You're not making fun of anybody. Yeah, they usually pay to get the show. Exactly. Yeah. So he, he, we partnered with, I partnered with um, 
Johnny Carson and Johnny Carson Production because I hadn't done a show at that point. They wanted somebody who, you sure, know, yeah. had the who had the chops, and so we made this little t- show called TV's Greatest Commercials. It was the number four. Uh, it was the the, the fourth largest, the fourth uh, highest rating show they'd had at the t- uh, all year. It was a giant hit. And it went on to become, as you know, like a, you know, it was a, it was a brand for years. Yeah. Dick Clark bought out essentially the brand, and and you know he I stopped being involved, and he was he did them for many years. That was my first show. That's cool. Did you get to work with Johnny Carson at all? I didn't. Oh man, I, I know. That was, I mean, I know. I was like, it was this production company, yeah. so I was like. I was like one degree of separation, but right, I never, right. I never finished that one degree. Right. That's a really interesting project, though. And like, I mean, now obviously you see those shows all the time. Right. right. What, what are some others? So then the next one that I did was again. This was now Hamilton and I were co-producing. We had now started our company. That was my. He was the partner. The guy at his name is Hamilton Cloud, and he was the guy at NBC, and um, and he um, uh, became my partner. Now we had this idea to do a. Um, a variety show. It was sort of your classic. This was the pitch that was going around. Somehow we got it sold because of Hamilton's, uh, uh, his relationship with Brandon Tartikoff. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the pitch was, uh, we want to do Ed Sullivan on acid. We want to do this whacked out, completely bizarre um, uh, variety show. And so we sold it. Little did we know at the time that, you know, we were being used politically as like this whole story about how essentially we got word later that he never had any intention of really picking us up. This was, we we were told outright, well, interestingly, I'm looking for a replacement for Saturday Night Live and this could fit that. So I'm going to, I'm going to um, commission that. As a, so we got to make that as a TV show. Later on, we found out he really never had any attention. He was just sort of, it was kind of a wake-up call to Lorne Markles, mm-hmm. I guess, at the time, because they were really having trouble with their um, with their ratings. I imagine that kind of thing happens all the time. And it does, of course it does, yeah. And gosh, when you're making a TV show, you don't ever expect you're going to make a hit show. So it's not like we were bitter or anything. But anyway, I made this show called uh, The Fun Zone. No, not the fun zone. Wait, it was the fun, yeah. Welcome. No, yeah, of course. It was called Welcome to the Fun Zone, and in fact, uh, I had Al do the music. This is I, there's all kinds of little stories, right? But in the fun zone, what fleshed out that idea, by the way, is um, I love the show. By the way, to this day, we had Howie Mandel, Carlos Santana, and the Fabulous Thunderbirds as our musical guests. Bozo the Clown as a live guest being interviewed by Dr. Demento. Cool. Talking about the, f- the footage that he had shot in Africa. So this really was TV on, on acid. I mean, here's Bozo the Clown showing his home movies from Africa. I mean, it was out there, right? John Candy. We had John Candy uh, and John Carradine. We had um, do a special uh, uh, short film for us. Um, the golf, the golf course that dripped blood. It was a it was a parody on on horror movies. Do you still have the tape of this? Yeah, sure. Is it on YouTube? I, I never checked if it's on YouTube. I don't. It's so rare. That'd be it's cool though. So rare. And Al, you know, he was still a client, of course. And so I had him. I brought him on to perform. You know, to perform. And I, and here's another one of those classic weird stories, right? Um, but uh, behind the scenes stories. 
is I'm producer of the show, and Al had never done a theme song. And I said, I want Al not only to perform, and he ended up doing I Lost on Jeopardy um, li- you know, live on the show as the other musical act. And uh, I said, I want him to write the theme song. Meanwhile, everybody else, including even my partner, I mean, everybody was really on my case about this. They're like, you know, they're like, it was so sacred doing a theme song to a TV show, you know? I'm like, guys, he can do this. It's going to be great. Don't worry about it. It's like, you know, look and just look at the track record he's got so far, which wasn't huge, but it was clearly enough. You could see his acumen as a writer, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know. Um, we got this guy, what was his name? Ira, oh, I'm forgetting his name. He was a guy who had written tons of theme songs, and he was like heavily ensconced in TV writing, you know. And then we they, basically they—it was really sort of sad, um, but true, which is that um, I got to the level where they—they—they they, they, rather than simply overrule me outright, you know. And part of it was they saw me as his manager, and and so like I'm jaded, I must be, and all that, right? And um, so uh, he. We did like sort of a, a what we uh, like our version of a sing-off, where we brought in this guy. We Al brought in his sheet music. This guy brought in his, his sheet music, and they each played what they wrote. And you know the other guys barely even paid attention to what Al you know uh, wrote. It's it was a shame. I, I I did the best that I could. I wasn't gonna. I, you know, basically, I couldn't go to war over it. I wasn't going to do that. Al didn't want, you know, think I, you know, he didn't necessarily expect me to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, because it was essentially, if you will, on the on the most basic level, a conflict of interest, right? Because mm-hmm. I managed this. Right, 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 yeah. Okay. So years later now, if you're a fan, you know, he ended up basically, because Al is so, um, he, nothing ever goes to waste for Al. He wrote a great song. I saw it that day in the studio when we went in and did this, you know, sound off. It's like, what's wrong with you guys? This is great. I mean, you know. And they picked Ira? And they picked Ira, this other guy, yeah. And so E.L., you know, um, not letting any good, good thing go to waste, did the only instrument, you know, recorded the only instrumental he ever recorded. I Meaning he, he had written the song. He's like, this is a really good instrumental. I'm going to record it. And he recorded it, you know, it was, and it's on an album. And... Um, of course, you know, is now at the head of every Weird Al concert. When the lights go down, you hear Welcome to the Fun Zone. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I did that. And then uh, I guess the only ones, other ones I'll mention, um, I, uh, I had a lot of fun with, I did, I, uh, I, I directed a, a pilot um, for what was then, there were two, there were two comedy networks. There was, there was Comedy Central and there was Ha. And Ha... And they, and they, or was it the Comedy Channel and Ha? Yeah, I think. I that's think right. that's what it was. Yeah, they merged and became Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. It was just when they were merging for the Ha Channel, but it was before they had announced the merger and all that. Uh, I did a um, a pilot for them. Uh, it was a half an hour sketch comedy show. Um, and among the stars of that show was Steve Carell doing his first TV show. Ah. Um, so there's another sort of Michael Richards moment, right? Mm-hmm. With like, although although Michael had done Friday, Steve hadn't really hardly done anything. Um, and Ryan Stiles was another star of that show. Um, Both improv guys. Yeah, Second City was our was it the, I mean, think about this, right? I mean, we had 
And I was set to direct the series. Um, we had Steve Carell and Ryan Stiles amongst the stars, who granted they weren't stars, but you can imagine the sheer talent we had uh, you know, on screen, right? And all the other cast members were just as good. The reason for that, because one of the production partners was Second City, and they all came from Second City. So we had, and, the, and their partner was Imagine, Ron Howard's company. So it was, so it was this, you know, blue, it was this total, uh, you know, massively high level, major league uh, shot here. We've got those two guys producing. We have all this talent on screen. And then what happened was, um, when you were talking earlier about, yeah, these things happen. Well, here's a classic story um, where um, uh, Second City, uh, Andrew Alexander, the head of, the legendary head of, of Second City, I think he still is, but, mm-hmm. right? Um, and Imagine had a, f- a feud and fell out of bed with each other and, uh, and the whole project went up in smoke. So, I mean, Ha was ready to buy it in a heartbeat. So talk about something I don't think you'll find even on YouTube. I mean, there's, you know, Carell and, and Styles and all these great people from this thing from Second City and Imagine, and it never saw the light of day. But I was very pleased with that, and I was really happy with it. I was, as I said, I would have done the series, but never got the chance. And then the other one, I guess, that I would mention that um, that, has, that is not comedy, that um, something I really enjoyed is about 10 years ago, um, I did, I'm a, I'm a major blues fan, and I did a documentary called Blues Story, where I did a documentary which featured the uh, first generation artists of blues artists and blues musicians. It had never been done before. I'd always been a huge fan of blues, and any doc I ever saw in the blues featured these white college professors talking about what blues was about, and it really just pissed me off all the time, just like, this is nuts because there are all these guys who are not speaking for themselves. It was never done. It was almost like the TV's greatest commercials. Just such an obvious idea. It's like, these guys, they're still alive. They're in their 80s and 90s. Um, You know, some were in their 70s. But they ain't going to be around much longer, and they've never, they've never been captured properly. So I did, I did that, and they're all gone now. I mean, the the only ones that are left are Buddy Guy and BB King, I think, and Bobby Bland. I think I had twenty of them, and I think all of them are gone now. Was it refreshing doing something that wasn't comedy? Yeah, I bet it was. But you know what? It was as much a passion, a work. You know, it was, it was such a passion play for me. The way really comedy is, I mean, I, I love comedy. It's a passion work for me. I was passionate about blues. So it was more about the passion than it was about being refreshing than it was in comedy. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It wasn't like I was looking for something serious, although I would love to be doing more, you know, just... Did you, you tell know, these blues like musicians, that? these legendary blues musicians, that you were Weird Al's manager? No, and they wouldn't have known if I did. You don't think so? You don't think B.B. King knows who Weird Al is? He might. He might, but probably nobody else does. I, I think they know. I Maybe. They, I don't know. So now is the time of the show where we plug things. What does Weird Al have coming out soon? We got the book. The book, um, Weird Al the Book, Abrams, uh, coffee table book about um, his, uh, which is, uh, you know, this wonderfully lavishly illustrated book on his um, his life and career, which, as you said, was, was essentially written by Nathan Rabin mm-hmm. um, from AV Club, uh, and Al contributes like his tweets and the and the captions to the 
to the uh, photos. But that's coming out as we speak. If you go on, you can see you can pre-order it right now mm-hmm. on, on Amazon. And I think the official release date is October 1st. I feel like there was, there was a time when I would, for Weird Al, you'd have to wait a few years between albums. But now it seems like there's, maybe it's just because I follow him on Twitter or something, there's just a constant stream of Al. You know, you see him uh, on shows, you see him doing voices and... Um, I don't know, it's just more, you get, you get more of it than you, than you used to. I think a lot of that has to do with internet Internet presence, videos, yeah. You know? And be, you know I mean, because, he did like 14 videos, or he did a video for every song on his last album. Well, and that too. That too, yeah. That was, that was huge. I mean, and, and even on the album before that, um, all the originals had, uh, had uh, videos. You know, that's a part, and it's another part of his genius, and it's a, another part of a testament to who he is, is the, is the talent, the, it's just the sheer talent, the people that agree to, to do these videos for a dime, because we don't have a budget for that, and especially now we don't have a budget for that with what's happened in the record business, mm-hmm. but people just want to be part of it, you know? I think a lot of people, like myself, you know, this grew up on this, and this is a major yeah. part of their comedy education, and their... Uh, just general education. It's part of his being an icon, you know. I mean, part of it's gotten to this point where, you know, the story that I tell is is similar to one where a good buddy of mine is a, a guy named Larry Klein, who um, is who was Dick Clark's right hand for many many years, and Larry told the story about how he and Dick were walking through the lobby of a hotel once, and Bob Dylan was coming at them from the other direction. And they and they come and it was you know not planned or anything, and they sort of they literally sort of bump into each other, and Dylan is like speechless and he's like mumbling and he's like fall, he's practically on his knees, you know, and Larry looks at at um, at Dick looks at at um, um, and I call him Dick for first name because we've had the pleasure we work with Dick on the Weird Al. Uh, on the Weird Al show, oh, right, so right. He, was a, he was a partner, right? Anyway, Dick, the part, the uh, so it was around the time I was told the story that Dick looks at at Larry and goes, "What was that about?" And he goes, "You're Dick Clark," and he goes, "Oh, okay, <laughs> I guess <laughs> you know." And I, I tell that story because we get, the, you know, we've now Al's become such an icon that we get that it's really gratifying and wonderful. I mean, that he gets that all the time. The influence that he's had on so many people. That will go, that are just, you know, where they'll say, I, the reason I'm in, the reason I got into the entertainment business, the reason I got into broadcasting. Yeah. And it's really phenomenal, the number of people really that say that, and it, it really is testament to the impact that he's had on people's lives, you know? Yeah, I think for me, like, certainly he's a major reason I got into comedy, but also, um, just I, listening as a kid, I think it was it made me realize that it was, like, okay and maybe even kind of cool to be weird and to be not normal and like uh so i I think for me anyway the influence is more than just uh comedy and the things i like it's like a a whole world outlook that's right and that of course came full circle when he actually memorials memorialized that exact notion by writing and recording white and nerdy Mm -hmm, yeah so it was no longer sort of just well this whole universe is the white and nerdy universe He's not, he gave he gave recorded license to it. You yeah, know? yeah. yeah. And espe- but especially at the time in like the eighties, mm. uh, now it's like okay to be nerdy. And I think Weird Al is like one of the people that kind of uh, cleared that path and made it uh, you know made it okay no to, to make it make it socially acceptable to be uh, nerdy and dorky about things. No and doubt. you're one of the people that uh, helped get him there. It's been an honor and a privilege. All those sort of corny things. It's all true. I mean, it's been it's been an amazing ride, and it still is. Right. I mean. 
I was going to say that about the past <laughs> hour. It has been an honor and a privilege oh, to have you on the show uh, to talk uh, to talk about this stuff. Uh, it's incredible. It really has had a huge influence on me. And thank you so much for doing it. It's been my pleasure. Well, that pretty much made having a podcast worth it. Thank you again, Jay. And keep up the incredible, incredible work. Guys, Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin shows usually come out every single Tuesday. But as you know, I take off the first Tuesday of any month. That is next week. But I will be back on October 13th. I think it's the 13th. Yeah, you know, the second week of October. I'll be back with Justin Wong, one of the greatest fighting game players of all time. Fighting games, of course, uh, the genre, um, best exemplified by games like Mortal Kombat, by games like Street Fighter. Justin is one of the best fighting game players of all time. He has several Marvel vs. Capcom 2 titles. He was, at a time, the best Mortal Kombat 9 player in the world. Here is what that interview is going to sound like. So if you didn't get into Street Fighter 2, how did you start taking fighting games seriously? Because at Chinatown Fair, it was very, very fighting game heavy. They had like Street Fighter Alpha 2, Street Fighter 2, like Street Fighter 3, like Marvel Superheroes, Marvel's Capcom 1. They have a bunch of fighting games from like every genre and every like company making them. And New York was very heavy into the, to just like, I guess, playing competitively. And in terms of competitively back then, it wasn't really like on some esports level or company sponsored. It was basically whoever was part of the community and a lot of the tournament organizers were from the community because they just wanted to see who was the best in the USA. How did you start getting good? Well, um, I used to play like the Marvel series with my high school friends and um, we you know we thought we were good. So we always go after school, after three o'clock, we always went to the arcade, but we always had to leave at five. So one day I stayed after five and there was like the 7 p.m. crew when people get off work type of thing and they beat me so bad and like... The people that beat me, that that beat me really bad, were the actual like, like competitive players that went to tournaments and stuff. And you know, from there, I just kept kicking it with them, and kept losing a lot more. And then eventually, like, I just got a lot better. It's almost uh, really like anything. If you compete against people that are better than you, you're gonna get better. Oh yeah, because you know, you you get to see like, why did you get hit there? Why did I lose there? And why did um this person win so you kind of like just try to capitalize off of it if you How much win time like first are you place spending in the arcade probably as much as i can and as much as i didn't get as much as i didn't get in trouble with my family so like if i was going to school i get up at three i was there two hours on school nights but when it came to weekends i was there like from 10 a.m to like 7 p.m so this was just all the time. Yeah, pretty much. Was it fun? It was really fun because I, I just wanted to beat them and try to be better than them. And at the time, there were so many different type of uh, new fighting games coming out for the arcades. What year is this? 1999. So this is like... This is like um, after Street Fighter 3. So at this point, is there a professional fighting game scene? Yeah, well, the thing is, there's a different term of professionally. It's more of a... A hobby, like it's like um, go, like you 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 go to a bowling alley and you join the the local bowling team to enter the local bowling tournaments. It's it's stuff like that. Like if you win like first place with the tournament, you wouldn't get like ten thousand dollars. You'd probably get like a couple hundred dollars. But we were playing because we wanted to see who was the best. 
Find out who was the best on October 13th when the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show returns. I'm sorry I have to take the first week of the month off. I have to uh, ritually sacrifice a virgin to ensure a fruitful harvest of guests for October. It worked for September. It worked for September. I'll be back. In the meantime, you can follow me on uh, Twitter, where I am at Jeff Rubin Show, on my Tumblr, jeffrubinjeffrubin.com, my Facebook fan page, and at youtube.com slash jeffrubinjeffrubin. Bye!